Good morning. Well, Psalm 13 answers a question I think that many of us have had either in the past or maybe a question that we're asking right now or certainly a question that we might ask in the future. And it's a question about suffering. How should suffering Christians pray? The reason I th- that I think that we either have had this question or do have this question or will have this question in the future is that God often leads Christians through suffering. He often leads Christians down the path of the cross. Maybe you're facing significant suffering right now. And if that's you, I've prayed that this psalm will be a breath of fresh air to you. If you're drowning in suffering right now, I I pray that this psalm will be a life preserver that you can hold on to. But I want to ask, what do we do with this psalm if we're not facing significant suffering right now? Why should we listen to this psalm if we're not facing significant suffering now? I can think of two reasons. The first is that even if we're not facing significant suffering right now, each of us faces the day-to-day effects of living in this world. It's a world where kids are bullied at school. It's a world with relational conflicts. It's a world with bad news in the headlines and disobedient children, unexplainable anxiety and depression, flat tires, ungrateful supervisors, Unmet goals, plans, and expectations. Disappointments at home. Disappointments at work. Disappointments at church. And just the daily struggle with our own sin. We all know there's something wrong with the world. Even non-Christians know that. And Christians know this even better. Because the Bible tells us in the first three chapters that the world is under a curse. It's actually, it's been created by God and is amazing, but it's also been cursed by God in response to our sin. And this psalm tells us how to live day to day as Christians in a world that's under God's curse. But I can also think of a second reason that you should listen to this psalm today, even if you aren't facing significant suffering right now. And that is to prepare you to face significant suffering in the future for preparation because we will all face significant suffering in the future. Some of us more than others, some of us far more than others, but we will all face it. As one author put it, all we have to do is live long enough and we will face suffering. Permanently broken relationships, cancer, Loss of parents, loss of a job, loss of our family, and eventually, loss of our own lives. Isaiah says, all flesh is like grass. Look around the room for a minute and think, in a hundred years from now, every single person in this room, even the kids, will be dead. Now, I know that's a very grim statement, and some of you are like, why is he saying this right now, right? Uh, Here's the reason that I'm saying this. I think almost everything in modern life, especially in America, 
is designed to make us ignore this most obvious truth. We're told that if we just work hard enough and follow our dreams, we'll be successful and prosperous and happy. Even some Christian preachers say this. They say, if you follow Jesus, you'll be successful and and prosperous and happy. But it's not true. Just look at church history, right? All the 12 apostles were martyred for their faith. They were all killed. The most successful people among us can tell us that it doesn't bring ultimate happiness. It's unsatisfying. And prosperity will never guard us from suffering and death. I once knew a man who was a successful doctor and a successful lawyer. Later in life, in the same year, his wife and his daughter died in the exact same year. And then he began losing his mind. And he had a caretaker taking care of him. And the caretaker stole all of his money. You see, why do I bring that up? Because prosperity can't guard us from suffering and death. Christians, in fact, are warned that we will suffer even more in this life. So here's what Paul says. He says, we must suffer with Christ in order that we will be glorified with him. Romans 8, 17. Or, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22. Or, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Philippians 1, 29. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. 1 Peter 4.12 What about Jesus Christ? Didn't Jesus himself warn us that a disciple is not above his master, nor a servant above his teacher? Excuse me, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple, Jesus said, to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. What was Jesus Christ like? Isaiah tells us that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was rejected, he was abandoned by his friends, and he was killed in a horrible way on a cross. And he taught us this. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mark 8, 34. You see, Christians should expect to suffer because we're part of a world that's cursed and because we follow the one who was crucified. But here's the thing. God hasn't left us alone in our suffering. He's warned us that it will come. And he's even instructed us on how we should respond. That's why Psalm 13 is in the Bible. What will you do when you face significant suffering? I hope you will remember Psalm 13. And I've got a really easy way for you to remember it, okay? But 13 is an unlucky number, right? So it's the unlucky number. You can just think, right? Suffering, you can think Psalm 13, right? Uh, I hope you remember Psalm 13. The point of the psalm is to teach us how Christians, how suffering Christians should pray. How should we do it? Well, first we see in verses 1 to 2 that suffering Christians should cry out to the Lord, with our questions. Do you see the repeated question in these first two verses? What is it? Do you see it? 
How long? Right? How long? How long? How long? How long? Can you feel David's agony in this prayer? How, how long will this go on? What was David suffering when he wrote this psalm? We don't really know. Some think he was sick because of his ref, the reference to death. I think because it mentions enemies several times that he wrote this at some point that he was in conflict for, with someone else for the throne of Israel. We don't know exactly when he wrote it, but we do know one thing. We know that at this time, David thought that God had abandoned him. Do you see what he says in verse 1? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? We also know that, that the situation caused David great anxiety and despair. Right? He was wrestling with his thoughts. I think that's what it means when it says, How long must I take counsel in my soul? How long must I have sorrow in my heart all day long? Why? Why was he experiencing such sorrow in his heart? We see this in the end of verse 2 because his enemy was exalted over him. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, some, some think that this, this language about the enemy is just a way of speaking about death itself. But I, I think this is probably someone David was in conflict with for the throne of Israel. Do you remember first and second Samuel? In first Samuel, God anointed David to be the king of Israel. And in second Samuel, he made a covenant with him. And he promised him that his family, his descendants, would rule on this throne forever. This is what Psalm 2 was all about, right? Do you remember that? This, this entry into the Psalter teaching us how to read it? It's about, it's about the idea that this anointed one in the line of David, this Christ, would rule as king of the world. If, David had, if God had really promised all of these things to David, how could his enemy be exalted over him? David knew there's something wrong with this picture. Had God forgotten these promises? Can you see how David's experience here foreshadows the experience of Jesus Christ? If God had promised that the Christ would rule over the kings of the earth, how could he be crucified in weakness by the, by the Roman Empire? Or what about Jesus' followers? If we are really the holy people of the Almighty God, how is it possible that we are so despised and rejected by the world. Sometimes it can seem as if God has forgotten his people. That's what David was feeling when he wrote this psalm. Now notice something here. Notice that David's suffering leads him actually to draw near to the Lord rather than to run away from God. So many use suffering as an excuse to abandon God. But this should never be the Christian's response. Our suffering should lead us to draw near to God, not to abandon him. Our suffering should lead us to cry out to God. How foolish would it be to run away from God in our suffering? What good would that do? Why would we run away from the only one that can really help us? Well, notice, too, that David cries out to God with questions. 
He, bring, he brings his questions to God. There is a sense in which God invites us to question him in our suffering, to ask, how long will this go on? Right? To ask, why is this happening, God? Even Jesus cried out to God with his questions. Do you remember that? He said, what did he say? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We too should cry out to God in the midst of suffering with our questions. Do you have to be a Christian to cry out to God in your suffering? I would say no. I think unbelievers can call out to God in their suffering. The prophet Joel says, all, all who call upon the Lord will be saved. But notice this, the second that, you've, the second that you cry out to God is the second you move from an unbeliever to a believer, right? Who would cry out to God if they didn't believe that God exists and can help them? And this is what it means to be a Christian, in fact, is to cry out to the Lord. And this is what we see, this is the first way that Christians should pray. We should cry out to the Lord with our questions. Well, the second thing that I see in this passage is that suffering Christians should reason with the Lord on the basis of his word. They should reason with the Lord on the basis of his word. And I see this in verses 3 to 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Here we see David make his request. He wants God to consider and answer him. Actually, literally, the Hebrew verb here is look and answer. Look and answer. Imagine a child who's in trouble. And their parents are having a conversation with someone else. Right, what does that child want? They want their mom or dad to look at them. Right? Would, you, would you just see me and help me? That's what David wants here. God, would you just look at me? Would you just look to me and answer me? But David's not a child, right? David doesn't only cry out to the Lord. Notice that David reasons with the Lord. He reasons with the Lord. If you don't help me, God, he says, if you don't light up my eyes, I will die, if you don't help me, my enemies will prevail over me. Well, why would this line of reasoning be convincing to God? Why should God take David's side rather than his enemy's side? I mean, think about it from the enemy's perspective. He might say, God, would you help me prevail over David? Why should David expect God to agree with him and not the other guy? Because God promised David the throne. Remember that? In, in 1 and 2 Samuel? God had promised David that he and his descendants would rule forever. But if David's enemies prevailed over him, God would have to break that promise. God would break the covenant that he made with David. Well, can you see again how David foreshadows Jesus Christ here? David's at a low point in this psalm, obviously. 
But Jesus, we know, was at a lower point. Jesus, Jesus, in fact, did, as the psalmist says, sleep the sleep of death. He died and he was put in the grave. If Christ had remained in the grave, all of God's promises would be false. This is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is good news. It's, it means that God has fulfilled all of his promises. God raised Christ from the dead and placed him on the throne as king of the world, triumphing over his enemies. And not just the Roman Empire, which is gone, right? But triumphing over the powers, the evil powers behind the Roman Empire, triumphing over evil itself, triumphing, triumphing even over death itself, right? Because he was raised. Remember how I said earlier that if we look around the room, in a hundred years, every person in this room will likely be dead. But the good news is that Christ has triumphed over death. God will raise with Christ all who call out to him for salvation, provided, though, that we suffer with him first, right, in order that we might be glorified with him. So here's the question, how should Christians pray in our current state of suffering? While we struggle with sin, if you face trouble or bullies at school, you struggle at work, when we find out we have cancer, I think David teaches us that we should reason with God. You see, God is not a thing, but a person. I think too often religious people, including myself, We approach prayer as if we're not really talking to a person. We say repetitive formulas. We use flowery language. We think that if we just pray with enough emotion or say the right words, then abracadabra, we'll get what we wish for. Imagine if someone asked you for something in the way that we often pray to God. You'd be like, whoa, that's weird. (laughs) Why are you talking like that, right? God is a person. He's a person. He invites us to reason with him in prayer, just like David does in verses 3 to 4. But what what if God is not convinced by our reasoning? How, how, How can we come up with a line of reasoning that is convincing to God? The great thing is that we don't have to. And this is because God has already given us his own line of reasoning in his word. So I suggest that really the best way to reason with God is on the basis of his own word. You see, many of our lines of reasoning about our suffering are actually wrong. And they're certainly not going to convince God in prayer. But the line of reasoning found in God's word is never wrong. It's something that God will never reject if we bring it to him. David could pray for deliverance with confidence because God had promised that he would triumph over his enemies. And we can pray with confidence based on what God has promised us in his word. This means, of course, that we have to know what he has promised us in his word in order to pray with confidence. 
And that means we have to study our Bibles to be prepared for suffering. That Christians have to study their Bibles to be prepared for suffering. Let me give you an example. When I was in my 20s, I went through a period of significant suffering. And at some point, I had memorized a couple of verses from Lamentations 3. And I I actually have in my notes here, this is an obscure passage that probably no one's ever heard of. But then Jay read it at the beginning of the service. So that's God's providence, I guess. Uh, So so I I memorized these verses from Lamentations 3. And part of the passage goes like this. this. This comes just a few verses after where Jay stopped this morning. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Now to a 20-something, the reasoning of these verses sounded very strange to me. Is it really good for a young man to face suffering in his youth? This was surprising to me. But you know what I did? I, I confessed to the Lord, Lord, this suffering is good. Because your word says it is good for a young man to bear suffering. And I asked him, show me your goodness. Because your word says you're good to those who wait on you. You're good to the soul who seeks you. You see, I reasoned with God on the basis of his word. And the Lord answered my prayers. You see, if you're not in the word, if we are not in the word, I'm afraid for us that we will be unprepared for suffering. Maybe you wonder, oh, how can I get in the Word? You could set aside 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, and just study a chapter of Scripture, maybe a book you haven't read before. You know, kids, even you could do that, right? 15 minutes, you could read a, read a chapter of Scripture. You could listen to the Word on your commute. The ESV app actually has a great little audio feature, and you can, you can do that and listen to it on your commute. You could keep each other accountable in your discipleship group. This is one thing that Jake and Gigi and I have done this year. We, we keep each other accountable um, to read a chapter each day. We, since January, we've read uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, and then on Monday, we're starting 2 Kings. Actually, we started 2 Kings last Monday, but I'm behind, so I had to ask everyone to, can we bump it back a week, right? It's not the first time. Maybe you could do something like that in your discipleship group. Remember, the point is not simply to read the Bible, to check something off on our list. The point is to understand God's reasoning, to understand his line of reasoning. We want to think more like God so that when we face suffering, we can reason with him on the basis of his word. Well, I see one final way that suffering Christians can pray according to this psalm. We should cry out to the Lord with our questions. We should reason with him on the basis of his word. And third, we should trust in the Lord's character. We should trust in the Lord's character. I see this in verses 5 through 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This point might actually be the most important point in the psalm. 
I say this because this is the great turning point in the psalm. But I. David begins the psalm in despair, but he ends it in confidence. Not in self-confidence, right? But in confidence in the Lord. Even though he has sorrow in his heart all the day, he trusts in the steadfast love of the Lord. When we encounter significant suffering, I think we can be tempted to doubt the Lord's character. Some even become angry and embittered with God. But this is not how David responds. He questions God's timing. How long, O Lord? He's honest about God's role in suffering. Will you, will you forget me forever? But he never questions God's character. He never doubts God's love. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. What's David talking about? I think he's thinking specifically about God's steadfast love and keeping his promise to him. Remember 2 Samuel where God makes that covenant with David? Well, if you read in chapter 7 there, it says that his, his steadfast love, the Lord says his steadfast love will never be removed from the family line of David. See, this is the kind of love that binds someone to keep a promise over the long haul. I think David, in the midst of suffering, trusts in the character of God to keep his promise to him. In fact, he's so confident in the steadfast love of God to keep his promise that he is sure God will answer his prayer. This is the meaning of these final lines in the psalm. Notice the future tenses here. Um, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David's thinking of the future here. He's sure that the Lord will answer his request. How can he be so sure? Because God had promised him that he would prevail over his enemies. And God is a God of steadfast love. He always keeps his promises. Suffering Christians in prayer must hold on to the promises of God and the character of God. This is the the source of our certainty in prayer. The promises of God and the character of God. We shouldn't hold God to do things he never promised to do. We will be disappointed if we do that, right? We shouldn't hold God to do things he never promised to do. God never promised, for example, that we wouldn't suffer. He has promised, though, in Romans 8, that suffering and even death can't separate us from the love of Christ. He told us in Exodus 34 that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is what the suffering Christian must hold on to the promises of God, and the character of God. We must, like David, even in the midst of despair, trust in the character of God. Well, in closing, would you consider with me one more time how David, 
who's called a prophet, by the way, wrote here about the death and resurrection of Christ a thousand years before Jesus was even born. The first four verses, I think, show us the despair of the cross. God hiding his face from his only son, allowing his enemies to triumph over him. Christ, the descendant of David, crying out, How long? Reasoning with his father in the garden, asking him to take this cup of suffering from him. You know, an outsider might say, How could God do this? How could God do this to his own son? But here's the thing God had never promised that his son wouldn't suffer. In fact, the opposite. He had planned from the very beginning of the world that Christ's suffering would lead to the salvation of the world. And so Christ died and was buried. In those last moments, did Jesus doubt the character of God? No. He committed himself to the steadfast love of his Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Even his enemies said, he trusted in God, let him deliver him. You see, Christ trusted in the promise and character of God that he would not leave him to decay in the grave, but that he would see the light of life. How then should Jesus' followers pray when we follow him down the road of suffering? Psalm 13 instructs us, we should cry out to the Lord with our questions. We should reason with him on the basis of his word. And we should trust in his steadfast love. Let's pray.